Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favourite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here today. As you may know, on this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive, one that he or she is particularly keen on, and then we ask him or her to read one of uh, their own poems, a poem that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Stephen Dunn. Stephen Dunn, whose collection, Different R's, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry in 2001. Just one of Stephen Dunn's many uh, achievements. Welcome, Stephen Dunn. Thank you. Now, the poem that you've chosen to read uh, for the podcast today is a poem by Donald Justice. Donald Justice, a poet... With whom you worked? Yes. He was a teacher of mine. Now, what was it like to be a student of a poet like uh, Donald Justice? It was to uh, listen to what was hidden in his praise, which he rarely liked anything that contemporaries did. And I knew that, and some other people in the class knew that. The people who didn't know that would always say, Don just loves my work, and it was it was uh, always a comic moment for me. I was sure he maybe liked one or two lines that I wrote in my whole life, but he he had a way of of entering a poem with a very rich intelligence and rummage around in it. So you you felt understood, uh, even though he may not be praising you. But did you feel at all that he was? pulling his punches, for example, either with yourself or other members of the workshop, I assume it was? In his way, I guess he was pulling his punches, but uh, he was always making judgments. I, I always heard them. I thought I did anyway. I mean, I remember a blurb he wrote, I won't name the poet he wrote it for, but he said, uh, this is the best work this poet has ever done. It was a terrible comment, I thought because he didn't like the poet. It must be very difficult to be involved in the teaching of poetry, which has necessarily got to do with working with people who are, insofar as there are any advances in the poetry business, who are perhaps less advanced. It must be very difficult to teach and yet have serious reservations about the work of those one's working with. I've been telling my classes on the first day for years now that I probably am not going to like anything they do the whole semester. I say to write a good poem is a very difficult thing. It's unlikely. A 
of course, they end up writing good poems occasionally, and they are more pleased than they would be if I hadn't said that. I also tell them that I'm already bored by their feelings, though I might not be. There's a chance that the burden is on them to make things fresh. So in some sense, you are challenging them to uh, come up with something that's really going to be interesting to you, at least interesting. At least interesting, and interesting to them especially. I think the danger of mostly encountering the experiential poem, you might put something in there that actually happened, which is the worst reason to put anything in the poem. And you have various commitments to the language you've already used. It seems always a trade-off to me that they know something about what they want to write, they have an intention, and then there's the language they find themselves using, which becomes a counter-inspiration. If they don't know that both things are operative, uh, they're not going to hear what they're doing well and they're not going to write a good poem. I think it does take some uh, students aback to be told that veracity is not really of any particular interest, and it's only verifiability that is of any interest. Uh In other words, not that it's true, but it looks as if it's true. It feels true, yes, yeah. I'm supposed to speak on Saturday about a poet as fictionist. And I think poets need to think of themselves as any uh, novelist, self-respecting novelist would. You need to make things up in order that they might be true. And then they have to pass what I would call the veracity test. You would call it the the other V word that you use. The verifiability (laughs) test. Listen, we've talked in somewhat general terms, it might seem, to some uh, listeners, but actually very useful just to come into this poem with some of these ideas in mind. Uh, This poem by Donald Justice, There is a gold light in certain old paintings. The poem you're about to read for us now, Stephen Dunn. It's in three parts. One, There's a gold light in certain old paintings that represents a diffusion of sunlight. It is like happiness when we are happy. It comes from everywhere and from nowhere at once, this light. And the poor soldiers sprawled at the foot of the cross share in its charity equally with the cross. Two. Orpheus hesitated beside the black river. With so much to look forward to, he looked back. We think he sang then, but the song is lost. At least he had seen once more the beloved back. I say the song went this way. Oh, prolong now the sorrow, if that is all there is to prolong. Three. The world is very dusty, uncle. Let us work. One day the sickness shall pass from the earth for good. The orchard will bloom. Someone will play the guitar. Our work will be seen as strong and clean and good, and all that we suffered through having existed shall be forgotten as though it had never existed. The sweep of that poem is amazing, isn't it? The assurance of it. Yeah, it's the last poem in his collected. When I do a collected, if I ever do a collected, I would love my poem to be as good as this one. well, that's right. I mean, of course, it's not only poets, but certainly uh, poets are, fall into this category that they recognize poems that they would like to have written themselves. The, the poem has, has all of his subtleties, and I've always loved, even in his poems that don't rhyme, 
how he moves down the page with such assurance and with simple language that, that nevertheless surprises and is complex. For me, the one of the key words in the beginning is, in the second line, the word diffusion, mm -hmm. which seems to pay off in, in each of the three sections. Something is being diffused. It is like happiness when we are happy. Uh, the implication is that many times we are not happy. Uh, Even the soldiers are sprawled. Yes, and it leads to that word charity at the end of the first section, which is a wonderfully surprising word for the soldiers who have just done a terrible thing. <laughs> now, that those two lines at the end of uh, that first section and then, of course, at the end of the second and at the end of the third have a full or perfect rhyme, cross, cross, prolong, prolong, and existed, existed. Yeah, that seems amazing that you could pull that off. Well, that's right. The nerve of that is astonishing. Mm -hmm. You know, one might think it would be a great idea to try that. You know, the challenge of uh, the attempt to do that, of course. But actually, as you say, pulling it off, succeeding in doing it is a whole other story. Yeah. I'm especially moved by the, the end of the second one. I say the song went this way. Oh, prolong now the sorrow, if that is all there is to prolong. Well, what's fascinating about it is that, of course, though the words are the same, it's prolong, prolong, one is almost forced to sound each in a slightly different way, either inwardly or outwardly. Huh. Yeah, There's a uh, slight uh, variation in meaning. Maritain talks about uh, poetry having an inner melody uh, as well as an outer melody. I think this poem has both. It, it's a poem that I think desperately wishes to be affirmative, and it keeps on taking back a little bit uh, its claims. Well, looking uh, just at that word back, it, yeah. it in fact, there's a full rhyme uh, Yeah there on back in the second, back, back. Yeah. And then we've got good, good. And then, of course, we have sunlight and light. So not only is there a full rhyme in, in the couplet, but there's a full rhyme right the way through. Yeah. Now, in some sense, we admire this kind of technical assurance when we don't notice it. Yeah. I mean, that's when we admire it most. Yeah. And he, what, he makes us notice it here. Well, we, we notice it and we don't notice it. It's one of the great mysteries. Yeah. It's interesting. The only weakness I find in this poem is the, the second use of back. Well, I was just going to ask you, if you were to put yourself in Donald Justice's place in the classroom and there was something that you weren't going to like about this poem... What is it? That, that, that's it. I think, uh, well, the first one works. Orpheus hesitated beside the Black River. With so much to look forward to, he looked back. And that's literal in a mythological way. We think that he sang them, but the song is lost. At least he had seen once more the beloved back. And there's some awkwardness to that that is not apparent in any other line in the poem, I think. I want you to talk to me about that, if you wouldn't mind. We rarely have an opportunity to discuss this. It's, one of, to me, one of the great mysteries of the poem. And that has to do with how we know there's a problem at that point. Uh -huh. How do we know that? I think I know it or feel it 
because the diction doesn't deliver itself as clearly as the other one. It, it doesn't resonate well. And At least just, he had seen once more the beloved back. Right. He's trying too hard there, it seems, to get the rhyme. Slightly rind. cheap in some way? Slightly. It's just a small glitch in a, in a lovely poem. And it's because we have a sense, I want to suggest to you, of what it might have been, what, what the poem was capable of, and how we see, miraculously, really, how it falls short of its own uh, its own possibility. Does that make any sense to you? It does, it does. And, and he worked very slowly on poems, and but I don't know how long he spent on this, but one, one would imagine a great deal of time and that many of the lines passed very hard tests for him. So what do you think happened in this case? If, if indeed it is such a problem, and again, in the overall shape of the world's problems, it's hardly a great <laughs> one, but it is a problem. It's a little problem, and I wouldn't make too much of it except to say that I notice it in a poem that is otherwise, otherwise delivers itself with a certain kind of beauty, and he has such a terrific ear. The ear is just slightly off there. He's pushing the rhyme a little much. It's a terrifying notion, really, isn't it? However circumspect one might be, and in the case of Donald Justice, so remarkably circumspect, that even then something can get by one. It's a very chastening, sobering (laughs) idea. (laughs) It, It is. I mean, I love what he's trying for here, and I'm sure he didn't know at all what he was trying for. Found himself writing these three particular sections. First one I think is perfect and the last one is very perfect if, they, if one can say that. And just one little glitch. You know, it happens to all of us many more times than it happens to it him. It does. And, it, and though it seems churlish to bring it up, it's very interesting in its way to remark that a great poem may not be absolutely perfect. Yeah. There are many Shakespeare plays that are far from perfect, many Yeats poems that are far from perfect, and yet somehow they kind of manage, or more. Well, he, he's somebody who encourages trust uh, by getting things right. I remember he, he gave a reading and a woman came up to him afterwards and said, oh, Mr. Justice, that was so wonderful. Made me cry. And he said... Uh, Thank you, ma'am, but that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he was a difficult man in many ways. I visited him at Yaddo once, and he had been there three weeks. More than enough. Yeah. I said, how's it going? And he said, very well. I've written one poem, and I have four lines toward another. <laughs> he knew that was funny, but he knew that it, it was quite serious with of him, Of course too. it was. Yeah. Of course it was. That was There is a Gold Light in Certain Old Paintings by Donald Justice and read there, of course, by Stephen Dunn. It was published in the November 24th, 1997 issue of the magazine. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence. 
a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate minority leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in the March 10th, 2008 issue, we were thrilled to be able to publish, Stephen Dunn, your poem, History, which you're about to read for us now. Um, there's a word here that struck me just as I ran my eye over it again that uh, I think we'll get, but might cause a little moment's hesitation for the ear, and that's the word ziggy. <laughs> I'll talk about it now a little bit, but I can talk about it a little more afterwards. But, you know, if you think of history being dialectical, ziggy seems like the right word to, to identify Zig-zaggy, some zigzaggy. Pro- yeah. Great. So let's hear read it. history read by Stephen Dunn. History. It's like this. The king marries a commoner and the populace cheers. She doesn't even know how to curtsy, but he loves her manners in bed. Why doesn't he do what his father did, the king's mother wonders. Those peasant girls brought in through that secret entrance. That's how a kingdom works best. But marriage? The king's mother won't come out of her room, and a strange democracy radiates throughout the land, which causes widespread dreaming, a general hopefulness. This is, of course, how people get hurt, how history gets its ziggy shape. The king locks his wife in the tower, because she's begun to ride her horse far into the woods. How unqueenly to come back to the castle like that, so sweaty and flushed. The only answer his mother decides is stricter rules, no whispering in the corridors, no gaiety in the fields. The king announces his wife is very tired and has decided to lie down, and issues an edict that all things yours are once again his. This is the kind of law history loves that contains its own demise. The villagers conspire for years, waiting for the right time, which never arrives. There's only that one person, not exactly brave, but too unhappy to be reasonable, who crosses the moat, scales the walls. That's uh, history read there by Stephen Dunn. Who is that person who's too unhappy to be reasonable, not exactly brave? How do you visualize that person? I mean, I have a vision of he's him. A, he's a kind of radical or, or saint or someone we 
we admire historically, but we wouldn't want to go out to dinner with, I think. He would be obsessive and essentially too unhappy to have the kind of life that the rest of us settle for. And there's always some galvanizer in history like that, I think, who causes big movements, who makes, makes changes. Probably more than one, of course, but I, I use him as an emblematic example. That particular character isn't played by Errol Flynn, perhaps? <laughs> Could be. I don't think of him as that romantic uh, a figure as, as Errol Flynn. Well, it's a, it's a poem that does partake of that world picture, though, of the, the kind of Robin Hood, the swashbuckler, the milieu that we're familiar with from as much from films as any other source, I think. I think one of the things that pleased me about the poem, and which pleased me about Don's poem as well, is the blending of tones. It starts out essentially comic and moves toward its its seriousness. It's interesting um, that in Don Justice's poem, we have the word diffusion. In your poem, Stephen Dunn, we have the word radiates. It's almost as if they're in dialogue with each other. Huh, interesting. Do you think that influenced when you came to choose the poem of your own that you'd read? I was, I'm sure not. Uh-huh. Uh, not. Not consciously, at least. Not consciously. There are so many things that influence one's choices. And even then we know that poems that seem seamless are rarely so. That, you know, I imagine, I think I had... The first lines were the king locks his wife in the tower. So the poem, the poem got moved around and, and changed to give it a, a greater sense of, of what I found myself doing. I think as in Don's poem, though probably not as good as his, uh, every moment is a found moment in the poem. I had no idea where I was going. And then, and then you go there and you get there, then you have to change things. You know, you can write your best line in your 18th line of the poem, but it's a good line and it's not totally unprepared for. So you have to go back and re-stitch. You you change the second line so it makes it seem like your mind was shapely all along. All the ways that that poems get made. Uh, But the illusion of a seamless poem is what I think we strive for. It is an illusion. It's a pleasure, Stephen Dunn, to have been able to speak with you today, to hear you read uh, your poem, History, uh, as well as Donald Justice's poem, There is a Gold Light in Certain Old Paintings. That poem by Donald Justice, as well as Stephen Dunn's poem, may be found on newyorker.com. Donald Justice's final book of poems was his collected poems. And Stephen Dunn's most recent collection is Lines of Defence, and then there's been a chapbook since then, Keeper of Limits, the Mrs. Cavendish poems, great title. So you can subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, and the Political Scene Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. For the moment, I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye.
There is a gold light in certain old paintings by Donald Justice appeared in the collected poems of Donald Justice and was used by permission of the publisher, Alfred A. Knopf, copyright 2004, all rights reserved. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play. The theme music is The Pitnacree Ferryman, from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.